Hey guys, welcome to the first episode in this series where we will be bringing you the full recordings from each of the sessions and workshops from TechShare Pro 2019. This one's a doozy. We're starting off with accessible gaming. Details of the speakers and links to their slides and a transcript are in the show notes. Hi, everybody. Yeah, waving. Mostly people from AbilityNet. Oh, we've got one more person coming in. Come on. Quick. You're going to miss the exciting dynamic start to this session. <laughs> Hi, welcome, everyone. Thank you for picking the most exciting talks of the day. I'm slightly biased. Um, so my name's David. I'm from AbilityNet. I'm one of the accessibility consultants there. Now, I spend a lot of my time kind of working to see, uh, applying for things, for example, like the WCAG standard to attest whether or not websites and apps are accessible and doing kind of user research. Now, the kind of user research that we end up doing and the things that we test for accessibility are tasks like, can I check my bank balance? Can I, for example, identify what day of the week that direct debit left for my bank account and what day of the week do the bins get collected? Now, I'm not going to for a second going to undermine the incredible importance of making sure that those kind of daily activities are accessible. But a world in which those are the only things that are accessible, it's quite a boring world. And so one of the most important things for me in accessibility is ensuring things that are fun, things that are entertainment, things that you can do in your time to unwind and interact with friends are just as accessible as the kind of things that we would consider to be basic components of daily living. Now we've got some absolutely fantastic speakers today. We've got Ian Hamilton, who's one of the kind of world's leading voices on game accessibility. Uh, Lauren Moore from the BBC, who's going to be talking about the excellent work that the BBC do for making sure that children's games on CBBC are accessible. And Mark Friend from Sony PlayStation, who's going to be talking about how he kind of does some kind of testing and work on the games that they make to again ensure that they are as accessible as they can be. And without any more talking from me, if everyone could just welcome Ian to the stage to kind of give an update for what's happening in the world of game accessibility. Woo! Hello. <laughs> so, yeah, um, as you heard, my name is Ian. I'm an accessibility specialist. My background was initially in um, design and UX across web, print and games. And now game accessibility is all that I do. And it's been an exciting field to work in, especially the last few years. It has been picking up steam enormously, um, especially in the last year. So I've done a few of these kind of news update talks over the years, and um, I just keep like a note on Google Keep of the um, news that happens over the year. Um, a couple of days ago, I hit the character limit. I didn't even know that Google Keep had a character limit, and it's only November, so that the amount of stuff that's happening this year has been really, really exciting. And that's what I'm going to talk to you about, some of the cool things that have happened over the past year. So, there's been far too much for me, able to, for me to be able to cover everything. Um, so I'm just going to cover a few key themes, a few common patterns there's been over the past year. So that's hardware, middleware, information, events, games, and everyone's favorite topic, legislation. <laughs> so starting with hardware. Um, the big news that most people are aware of um, is the Xbox Adaptive Controller. The Xbox Adaptive Controller actually came out over a year ago, and I'm only talking about stuff from the past year, so that's all old news now. I'm not going to talk about that. What I'm going to talk about is what happened next, which has been other mainstream gaming technology companies, companies that um, 
haven't had any kind of background or experience in accessibility and now moving into the assistive technology market, marketplace, which is really exciting to see. First off, this from Thrustmaster. This is something that wasn't actually designed for accessibility, but this is a highly configurable controller. So you can um, unplug and plug in different parts of the controller and basically rearrange it to suit your own specific personal needs. So although this is not specifically designed for accessibility, it's got lots of nice accessibility potential. Next up, this one came out of the left field for me, um, IKEA. So I didn't know, but IKEA have a really strong background in accessibility. Um, it's primarily through furniture, but they're now moving into um, the assistive tech space and specifically into gaming. So this is an ergonomic wrist brace and tactile key toppers. This is just the first couple of products that they're releasing. Um, they're going to be doing a lot more of that in future. And their angle is basically 3D printing. So like with this 3D, wrist brace, um, 3D printed wrist brace, the idea is that they're going to move into making peripherals and accessories that are specifically tailored to each individual person's needs. And on to the big one. This is the really exciting one for me. Um, this is breaking news. This um, was only announced a couple of days ago. This is a company called Logitech who make all kinds of gaming accessories, controllers, headsets, all that kind of stuff. Um, what you're looking at is a set of accessibility switches. Um, how many people in the room are familiar with accessibility switches? Cool. So not everybody. Okay, so for the people in the room who aren't familiar... Um, an accessibility switch is basically something just sends a simple on-off signal, something that, that closes a circuit. So it's basically like pressing a button and pressing key press. Um, they're used by people who can't use traditional input devices like keyboards, mouse, game controller, that kind of thing. And the Xbox Adaptive Controller is basically an adapter that allows you to hook up these custom input devices to an Xbox. Um, and these input devices can be buttons, a tube to blow into, um, a button mounted on the wheelchair headrest, a blink detector. It's exactly the technology that Stephen Hawking famously used. So um, Logitech have released this. Um, this is an um, adaptive gaming kit. So what you're looking at here is an analog trigger, a light touch super sensitive switch, a large button switch, a small button switch, and a board to mount them on. And this kit comes with two of these, uh, two of the triggers, four of the light touch switches, three big switches, three small switches, and two of these boards. Um, one of them is flexible, so you can attach it to an arm, to, uh, to a wheelchair handrest. And it also comes with um, the labels to attach to it, and Velcro to attach it with. Um, so in all, there are 10 switches, two analog triggers, the two boards, all the stuff to affix them to. So there's quite a few people in the room who are familiar with um, accessibility switches. You probably know how much that kind of kit would cost for like 10 switches. This is £89 for the lot. And you can just go into the Microsoft store in London and pick it up off the shelf. So this is huge. This is not just relevant to gaming. This is standard tech that you can use to control an iPhone that you can use to control um, your PC, your smart home. This is turning the AT market on its head. This is amazing, amazing news. Now, um, I said I wasn't going to talk about the Xbox adapter controller. Um, I actually am. Not about the hardware itself, because that's all odd news, but I'm going to talk a bit about what happened next, which was they started talking about it. Firstly, with the holiday ad, which was this time last year. Then a few months later, they also ran an ad at Super Bowl. Um, if you haven't seen this, I'd highly recommend watching it. Just stick in um, Xbox Super Bowl ad um, into YouTube and you'll see it. 
And it's just basically um, a bunch of kids um, playing with their friends using the adaptive controller and these accessibility switches and talking about what gaming means to them. And the, the Super Bowl ad slots, I can't remember exactly off the top of my head how much it costs. I did at one point, but I've forgotten. Um, but basically they paid for a double-length slot, a full-minute advert, they're normally 30, 30 seconds. And that was over £10 million to pay for that advertising slot. And he used it just to educate people about how important accessible gaming was. And that advert was seen by about 100 million people watching the Super Bowl. It was seen by tens of millions of other people watching it on YouTube afterwards. And I don't know if any of you have ever looked at a YouTube comment section. Normally they are a wretched hive of scum and villainy. <laughs> but the comments were, were 100% positive. Everyone loved it. Um, the same on social media. The US Surgeon General was tweeting about game accessibility. Um, T-Pain, the rapper, was tweeting about game accessibility. Cher, as in the singer Cher, was tweeting about game accessibility. It's like we stepped into this alternate universe where everything was amazing, but it was actually real. Um, yeah, so, so for, I'm sure there's a lot of people in the room working in advocacy. I'm sure you can imagine when this happened that it was quite an emotional thing, you know, for, especially for people who have spent all the years trying and trying to like, persuade individual people to care. To see someone like Microsoft just drop like 10 million pounds or making hundreds of millions of people care was amazing. And it had impact across the board, not just for accessible gaming, because amongst those people, there will have been tens of millions of people who've never thought about accessibility before in their lives. Their first interaction with accessibility is to think, oh my God, this is amazing. So very, very cool stuff. Ah, this is what it needs. So next up, middleware. Um, so middleware, I'm talking about the frameworks that um, game developers use, the tools game developers use to make their games, um, specifically engines. So engines is similar to what you get in web. It's like a coding framework that, that takes care of basically some of the scaffolding of baking games. Traditionally, these have been complete blockers for accessibility, like the way that... Um, engines render out the visuals is completely inaccessible to screen readers. Um, so traditionally it has fallen on third parties to make plugins and add-ons for these engines to try and work in a bit of accessibility. And that's happened a lot over the past year. Um, some really, really nice stuff from even big companies like Microsoft releasing some of these engine add-ons for blind accessibility. But this is one of my favorites. This is called Yellow Subs Machine. Um, if you want to check this out, that's unrealengine.com slash marketplace slash yellow-subs-machine. And this is basically a subtitle presentation system. So subtitles and games are pretty much universal. Almost all games have subtitles. Almost all games have terrible subtitles. And you're going to hear a bit about that later on. Um, so this takes care of the presentation layer, basically. So um, this costs you like $25, stick it in your game, and that gives you instantly, without any work at all on your part, scalable subtitles, configurable um, colors, configurable font, the ability to turn a speaker name on and off, loads and loads of really cool stuff for $25. So I said that engines have traditionally been a blocker to accessibility. That is now changing. So this is a couple of months ago. This is somebody who works for Unity, which is the most popular game engine, posting a thread on their forums looking for input from developers. And they're looking for input on two things. They're looking for input on what the engine can do to help developers make games more accessible, 
They're also looking for input on how the engine itself, the tool itself, can be made more accessible to disabled developers. And they need this feedback. They want this feedback. The address for it is tinyurl.com slash unity dash thread. And we're already starting to see results from it. They actually had a hackathon in the summer, and they had multiple teams working on accessibility projects in that hackathon, including a prototype of native cross-platform screen reader support. So again, this is, this is still a prototype. It hasn't been released yet, but this is huge. Um, you know, I think it's something like 60% of game development is done using Unity. So if 60% of the market all of a sudden had easy out-of-the-box screen read accessibility, that would be a massive change across the entire industry. The second most popular engine is Unreal. And not long after Unity announced their prototype, Unreal released their version. It's still an experimental feature, but that's actually in use in games now. So I think the first game we're going to see using this technology is coming out um, in two weeks' time. So, yeah, so we've gone from um, this time last year, like the idea of game engines supporting blind accessibility was just like pie in the sky, wishful thinking. Now the two most popular game engines covering something like 80% of the industry are now working on this functionality. Next topic, information. There's been an abundance of resources come available in the past year. There's already good resources out there. This has grown and multiplied. Um, we've had uh, Accessible.Games, which is the launch of a set of accessibility design patterns made by Able Gamers in America. We've also had AccessibleGameDesign.com, which is a set of UX-focused game accessibility guidelines. Designing sorry, designing for disability. Um, this is a really, really lovely um, YouTube video series. And actually, the person who created this was speaking at this event last year, um, Mark Brown. Um, he's quite a celebrity in the game development world with a really, really big existing following. So when he started making these accessibility tutorial videos, there was already like hundreds of thousands of viewers for his stuff. So it spread an enormous amount of awareness. And also, some more breaking news. As of, um, I think, 8 p.m. last night, managed to sneak the slide in, the Xbox Accessibility Guidelines. So this is literally just launched last night. Um, this is a set of internal guidelines that Xbox have been using for their internally developed first-person titles that have gradually been evolving. They've now got to the point that they're making them freely available for the public to use. So like I said, this was only announced last night, so you are um, amongst the first people in the world to be looking at this. And I'm going to give you the address. Here we go. So this is, this is the addresses for the things I've just been talking about. Um, tinyurl.com slash xbox dash ags. Accessible.games, accessiblegamedesign.com. And for that video series, tinyurl.com slash d4d dash vids. And more breaking news. So this is, this is something that happened um, just this weekend. And I'm quite apt as we're here at Google. There is a gaming platform which is in the process of launching called Google Stadia. This is a streaming gaming platform. So basically, um, you don't have any gaming hardware. You stream the games over the internet. So there's no downloads, no installs, that kind of stuff. Google's just in the process of launching this. They held a Reddit Ask Me Anything session this weekend. And as part of that Ask Me Anything session, they announced that they are working towards accessibility standards across all games on Stadia. So... Not accessibility guidelines that people are free to use if they choose. Accessibility standards across all their games. 
There are some companies that have mandatory accessibility standards already, um, but that's at publisher or studio level, people like BBC. For an entire platform to be requiring accessibility across all their games is something that we really haven't seen before, and that's going to have big ripples across the whole industry, um, including just because most games are cross-platform. If Google are requiring developers to include accessibility in their games on Stadia, that accessibility will appear on other platforms that games are released on as well. So if this means what it reads like, this could be absolutely huge for the industry. So last on the topic of developers sharing information with developers, um, I'm just going to share with you a single tweet. Um, I'll give you a little bit of background first before I get onto it, um, which is Assassin's Creed. So this little story is about Assassin's Creed Odyssey, which is a game that came out, I think it was about 18 months ago. They did some nice work in their subtitles and decided that they were going to track usage data, see how many people were actually using their subtitles. They tracked it. The figure they got back was just over 60% of their players were playing with subtitles turned on. Subtitles were turned off by default, so that 60% of players actively choosing to turn on subtitles. So they thought, well, okay, if most of our players want to play with subtitles turned on, why don't we just turn them on by default and let people turn them off if they didn't want them? They did that. And then they tracked the usage data. They tracked the usage data to see when subtitles are turned on by default, how many people left them turned on. 95%. To make sure this wasn't an anomaly, they checked, they checked it on another game, Far Cry. 97%. So like I said earlier, subtitle presentation in games is terrible. If there was ever a reason to fix that, this is it. So I'm going to stick on the topic of social media for a bit, but, but shift tack slightly and talk about a different source of information for developers, which is, of course, gamers, a vital source of information on accessibility. And the past year has seen the rise of the accessibility megathread. So this is people posting about an accessibility issue, getting huge amounts of likes, retweets, loads and loads and loads of comments that are a goldmine of information on accessibility. And they Mark here has had a couple of nice threads of that over the past year. But there's been one topic in particular which has dominated it which has been this. So I'm going to read out these two quotes. Dear all video game companies, if you're making a game for a home console, have a chat with your UI and menu designer about how their work is going on a television several feet away from the user and not a monitor about two feet away. Squintingly, healthy. Uh, 2,700 retweets, 11,000 likes. From Mike Drucker. Me at 15... I want video games to have the best graphics, the biggest explosions and deepest stories and coolest characters to show that this is truly the art form of the future, pew, pew, pew. Me at 35, I want video games to have an option to make text bigger. 3,400 retweets, 26,000 likes. So this is by far the most commonly complained about issue in games today, is text size. It's in a real, real dire strait. And it is because of this issue here on the left. Games are designed and tested on a big 28-inch screen two feet away from your face. And they're played on like a 40-inch television 10 feet away. That really, really needs to change. Especially as we're moving into the area of, uh, sorry, the era of platforms like Google Stadia, like xCloud, where you can stream a console game to a 4-inch mobile screen. This really needs to change. Basically, gaming needs to have its web moment when web moved to responsive design. Gaming needs to do the same. And this feedback, this is all informal. It's also been happening in more formal ways as well. This is a really, really lovely example. 
What you're looking at here is somebody streaming on Twitch. So typical setup, they're broadcasting their gameplay for the public to see. There's the picture of them up at the top left. Underneath that is the chat window. What's happening in the chat window is one of the developers of this game is facilitating a user research session. So this is making use of the streaming platforms that people are already using to carry out remote user research sessions. Really, really nice, not just for overcoming the barriers of like having to get into people's homes and all that kind of stuff, but also the fact that it's public actually lifting the lid a bit on the game development process, on the user research process, and actually showing people a bit about what the accessibility process involves. This is really nice to see. This was um, recent. This is just a couple of months ago this happened, and it's already spreading. So actually, at this very moment, um, Electronic Arts are running exactly the same thing for their latest game, Jedi Fallen Order. But people have been getting games into their studios as well. Um, this was from a co-creation workshop that happened in Ubisoft in Montreal, um, getting people with a wide range of disabilities into the studios for user research, for co-creation workshops, um, for design sprints. Companies like Ubisoft, like PlayStation, like Splash Damage, um, talking openly about the kind of um, things they're doing in this area, which is inspiring other companies to do the same as well. But information needs to flow in the other direction as well. It needs to flow from, um, from studios to gamers. Information about accessibility, about what's possible in their games. So EA were the pioneers of this really a couple of years ago, um, publishing a portal that contains accessibility information about their games. Um, other studios have now picked up on this. Um, a couple of recent examples. Um, Gears of War 5. Um, this is just a very small portion of a very long page um, detailing all the really cool accessibility stuff they did in the game. Same thing here with Ghost Recon Breakpoint, a long post detailing all the accessibility functionality in the game. There's been a lot of companies doing this now. Um, the reason why I picked these two in particular was that they published this information um, before the game launched. So that means that people are actually able to make informed purchase decisions, they're able to pre-order the game, they're actually able to build up some hype and excitement about the accessibility of the games, and that word then spreads and grows throughout the disability community. So this is really, really powerful. And next on the topic of information for gamers um, about accessibility, I'm going to go back to Google again. This is the Google Play Games app, and um, this was, I think this is around CSUN kind of time, um, they launched a blind-friendly filter. This is so, so important. And it's a double win as well. So it's not just a win for gamers being able to have information about which games are accessible to them. It's also a win for developers. Marketplaces are very, very busy. They're packed full of tons of games. It's a real battle to be discovered, to rise above everything else and actually have your game found by gamers. So if you've got this extra bit of filtering, this extra way to surface your game so people are going to want to play it, that's really, really valuable for developers as well. So a win-win, and I really hope that's something we'll see more of in the future. events. This is quite a different topic. It's an area that traditionally has been terrible. So this is industry events, things like conventions, things like expos, where accessibility has basically been non-existent. In the past year, that has really started to change. And it's changed in two areas. Um, firstly, in terms of the presentations themselves. Um, so have some nice double live captioning here. So this was um, actually at uh, GDC. I think actually this was... Um, yeah, this is actually somebody who's about to do some announcement about Jedi, Jedi Fallen Order. Um, but anyway, um, so you can see they have live caption here. Um, 
They had, so this was EA, um, they also had um, Crystal Dynamics, and both live captioning and ASL interpreting. Um, Xbox for their announcements, live captioning, ASL interpreting, also audio description on the live stream as well. So companies actually starting to care about making their presentations accessible. And also, finally, companies thinking about making their booths accessible as well. So same kind of companies like um, Ubisoft, like PlayStation, like Microsoft, like EA, um, thinking about the height of their booths, the accessibility of their controllers, the accessibility of the information that goes along the booths as well, basically making the events more accessible and inviting to people with disabilities. And if you want to know about, more about that, this is a nice resource. This is a talk about event accessibility, specifically gaming events, where you've got those issues around, like, how do you make a VR booth accessible to people with disabilities, stuff like that. Um, so the address for this is tinyurl.com slash rt-a11y. So a lot of these companies that are being here about, these companies who are publishing accessibility information, um, who are making their events accessible, it's the same kind of names that you're hearing again and again. Companies like, um, like uh, Warner Brothers, like Ubisoft, like EA. This isn't by accident. These are companies that have dedicated full-time accessibility staff. And this is something that simply didn't exist a few years ago. If you go back six, seven years ago, the number of people working in full-time permanent accessibility roles was zero. didn't exist. Five years ago, there was two people at Microsoft, then Karen at EA, then David at Ubisoft, and now there's about 20 people. Um, so I think it's about 12 people last year, now about 20. It is escalating very, very quickly. Um, this is from last week. So we're now actually starting to get the beginnings of accessibility being a viable career path in the games industry to work for game studios. This is a role that's been publicly advertised to be an accessibility project manager for Ubisoft. So if anyone fancies moving to Montreal and working for Ubisoft, this is the link to the job description. It's bit.ly slash 207JG capital K capital V. But what's going to happen very, very quickly in the games industry is that there is going to be a skills shortage. So these initial 20 people um, this is spread across like project management, across QA, um, across user research. It hasn't been too difficult to find these people. But there aren't that many people in the games industry who are going to be able to fill the roles that are needed. There's a lot of good self-advocates. There's a lot of developers who are building up skills and accessibility as well. But there really aren't that many people who've got experience of how to, like the initial talk this morning, about how to build an accessibility culture, um, how to embed accessibility within an organization. That's the kind of skill set that's really, really missing in the games industry. So if there's anyone working outside the games industry who's interested in moving across, now really, really is the time. So the best thing you can do for that is just get in touch with game developers. Every city has a whole bunch of game developer meetups just to speak to people, learn about the process, speak to people already working in game accessibility and learn about the differences and how it works in between games and other industries. So anyway, sales pitch over, um, but you should think about it. So I promised I was going to talk a bit about everyone's favorite topic, legislation. But first thing I'm going to talk about games. I forgot about the games. How can I do that? Okay. So <laughs> traditionally um, in the games industry, it has been the indie developers who have been driving progress. So that's small independent, independent developers, people within their like one to five people in the company who are free to do what they want. They don't have to worry about persuading a team of 400 people that this should be a priority against everything else that's on the backlog. And this has continued. Um, I'm just going to talk about two examples of games. The first one is a game called Sequence Storm 
This is a rhythm racing game. Um, what's on the screen here at the moment is um, a couple of screen grabs with the bottom chopped off. Um, can I change that? No, okay. So there's a couple of screen grabs from the trailer for the game um, showing reduced controls, custom note colors, um, a high contrast, oh sorry, yep, um, high contrast visuals, and I can't remember the last one was. Sorry, they changed my slides a bit to get the logos in the bottom, so it's missing the text. But anyway, basically they did tons of cool accessibility stuff. Um, even after launch as well, they released a patch to make all the gameplay completely blind accessible. They've done loads of amazing stuff. Next example is Eagle Island. This is a procedural platformer. What you're looking at here is a bunch of um, options for uh, visual accessibility. So you can adjust the contrast, you can add outlines to the characters, to the platforms, um, disable screen shake and flashing for people who are photosensitive and susceptible to simulation sickness. They had loads of other stuff as well, like being able to put the entire gameplay into slow motion. You can use any type of controller you want. You've got options to reduce the controls. Tons of stuff. These two games, Sequence Storm and Eagle Island, are at the very pinnacle of the industry. They're doing more than any other game. And these two games, even though they're completely different mechanics, have one thing in common. They were developed by a single developer, one person. So if one person can do all this amazing stuff on a shoestring budget self-funding, what can a company, a studio of hundreds of people and budgets of tens of millions of dollars do if they've got the right management buy-in, if the company is supporting those efforts? We're starting to find out. So this time last year, we were just starting to see games like Spider-Man, like God of War, that were starting to include stuff like this. So actually arrange a different accessibility features in their games. Since then, I'm just going to cheat here and use my phone to read out a little list. So I'm just going to read out a list of a few games. Battlefield 5, Madden 20, FIFA 20, Metro Exodus, Red Dead Redemption 2, Division 2, Devil May Cry, Mortal Kombat 11, Apex Legends, Gears of War 5, Ghost Recon Breakpoint, Borderlands 3, Jedi Fallen Order. I could just be reading out a list of the biggest releases of the year. And this is a list of games that have gone to this kind of level, implementing a wide range of accessibility functionality. That has an enormous tournament turnaround. Especially when you look back, this is just going back to 2015, Destiny. Destiny released a patch that added one accessibility feature. That was headline news. So to move to that, to the situation now where it's really not feasible to be launching a big name game without considering a wide range of accessibility features is a really incredible turnaround in a very short space of time. But a lot of these games are in the same kind of position that like Spider-Man and God of War were, where it's games that are just starting to think about accessibility for the first time late in development. When they start their next game, they'll be able to think about it from the start. And that's the thing I hear time and time again. People doing this cool stuff, but they're like, oh my God, if only I knew this when I started making my game. The next game, they will. And we're going to see the fruits of that over the next couple of years. It can be a very, very exciting time. Right, so now we've got those boring games out of the way. Now we can talk about the cool legislation. One piece of legislation in particular. Um, legislation called CVAA. Um, this is CVAA being signed in um, by Obama. CVAA, um, I'm sure there are some people at least in the room who aren't familiar with CVAA. It's the 21st Century Communication and Video Accessibility Act. And basically it came into effect to plug a few holes 
in existing legislation in the USA. So through the Americans with Disabilities Act, um, there were already accessibility requirements on communication and on television. Basically, that meant telephone, so like having to have a relay service for like um, text-to-speech across telephones, all done manually. Um, but the world moved on since 1990. Now, most people don't do their communicating um, through telephones. Most people don't do their TV consumption solely through broadcast TV. People are using things like Skype, like WhatsApp, like Facebook Messenger, like Netflix, like Hulu. And all these things weren't covered by accessibility requirements. This is why this legislation came along. It's basically to bring it up to speed with modern technology, meaning that streaming platforms now have accessibility requirements and that digital communication platforms now have, have accessibility requirements. That includes when a game has communication functionality. So now, if a game has text chat, video chat, or voice chat, that chat must be accessible. And also, any interface or information that's used to navigate to or operate that communication functionality must be accessible as well. And this is the first time there's been any kind of legislation that covers mainstream entertainment games. So, I'm not going to lie, when this came about, I was um, sceptical. Up to this point, the only reason that anyone had ever put accessibility in a game was because they wanted to. And that's how you get the good results, right? When people want to, not when they're being forced to. And the compliance deadline for CVAA was the 1st of January this year. So I was worried that it was going to create resentment. People being forced to do stuff that's going to result in substandard solutions, blah, 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 all the rest. I'm sure you're familiar. That didn't happen. So I was very, very pleasantly surprised by the result. It's actually acted as a door opener. So it's meant that now when people on the ground who want to do cool accessibility stuff start talking about it in their company, accessibility is a topic that's already talked about at the highest levels of their company. All management know about accessibility. All the company knows about accessibility. It's basically open doors for people. And also just the kind of general culture you get within game studios as well. People don't want to settle. Accessibility has kind of been like there in the background, this thing that people are kind of aware about. One thing I've seen a lot, time and time again with studios now, is saying, okay, so accessibility for communication, that's something we've got to do. Accessibility is not optional. Now that we're thinking about accessibility, right, how are we going to do a good job of this? How are we going to do a good job of accessibility, not just for communication, but across the whole of our game? So especially coming from a background um, in web accessibility and seeing people's reactions to compliance, this has been really, really wonderful to see that, that legislation has actually been a massive positive enabler for the industry. So if you want to know more about that legislation, tinyurl.com slash ih-dmcvaa. So on that list, um, this was going to be the, the last thing I was going to be talking about, but I figured um, legislation is probably a bit of a dry note to end on. So I thought I would end on something happy and positive instead. Sekiro. So is anyone in the room familiar with Sekiro? Okay, a few, a few people at least. Do so you understand this, this, um, this image? So basically, Sekiro is a game that came out, um, was it about, about Easter, April? And um, this happened, basically, on social media. Sekiro is a very, very hard game um, with no kind of accessibility options in it at all. 
And in basically social media, as it does, divided into two camps. Um, one camp saying um, this game is supposed to be hard and challenging. People who want it to be accessible are evil. And the other camp saying, um, I want to play this game. You don't want me to. You're an elitist gatekeeper. You're evil. And um, yeah, this happened, basically. Um, but in amongst all of this, um, somebody tweeted saying that accessibility destroys game developers' visions for their games. This person had an avatar, which was Kratos, who is the protagonist from the God of War games. What happened next was that Corey Barlog, who is the design director of God of War, saw this person's tweet and replied to him. And he replied with this. Accessibility has never and will never be a compromise to my vision. 787 retweets, uh, 3,000 likes. What happened next was another very well-known game developer called Rami Ishmael saw this tweet. He copy and pasted it. Other people saw it, copy and pasted it. Other people saw it, copied it, tweaked it to suit their own feelings about accessibility and pasted it. There are hundreds and hundreds of game developers all across the entire industry tweeting this. And this immense outpouring of support from game developers, um, I think this demonstrates more than anything else I've talked about really how far the industry has come. The accessibility now is not a case of a few advocates shouting in the corner hoping that somebody is going to listen. It's now part of the fabric of the games industry. We're not there yet. There's still a lot that needs to be done. Um, like I said, games are still kind of starting to feel their way around in the dark at their first kind of efforts. Um, there's a lot of consolidation that needs to be done. We need to work on processes. We need to work on workflow. We need to work on good practices. And that's going to be some of the stuff that you're going to hear about from Lauren and from Mark. But one thing that is clear is that we're in a very good place. And it's only going to get better. It's a very exciting time to be in the industry. Thank you. I know we're pressed for time, so I don't think I can take questions. Um, so I'm going to pass straight on to Lauren. Oh, hello. Thank you. I've got buttons. Excellent. Right. Hi. Uh, my name's Lauren, and I work for the BBC. Um, I am a design researcher. Um, this is just our way of saying a user researcher. We use design instead because at the BBC, design does not just mean the things that you make, it's the way that you do it. Um, I work in the children's and education department that recently got merged to be one thing. Um, and I work for the games um, part of this. Um, at the BBC, we make games and apps for children. I'm going to take you through that a little bit. Um, I also wanted to explain a little bit about kind of... Um, that this is the first time I've done a uh, conference and especially the first time I've talked a lot about accessibility. Um, and the reason is because at the BBC we do something called rotation, which means that in the user experience department we get told that we go to a different department every one year, two years, three years. So it's meaning that we get kind of uh, fresh ideas, uh, people coming into projects that the same person has been on for a long time and, and we get to see things with new eyes and this is what has happened and that has led me to taking up the mantle and going, right, our accessibility is not right and I want to do something about it. So today's talk is going to be about taking something that you think should be better 
and continuing that struggle that somebody else has just put down and keeping it going because accessibility should be a journey and you should keep on working at it. Um, so this is what accessibility looks like in the games team at the moment. This pitch will make a lot more sense when I get to the end of my talk. Um, so games at the BBC. Often people look at me and go, you work for the BBC, the BBC don't make games. I'm like, well, our prerogative is to inform, entertain and educate. Almost forgot that. Um, <laughs> entertainment. What was the biggest um, grossing entertainment in the media last year? Any guesses being in this room? It was games. Yay. It... Um, it's kind of a, a no-brainer for the BBC to get involved in games. Games is like, well, I might be a bit biased, but maybe the most entertaining uh, media that we produce as a society. So um, if, to me, it makes complete sense. What games do we make? So we have brands. I mean, I do feel like I'm preaching to people who probably will know this. If you live in the UK, you probably have seen that bug so many times, especially if you have children and you don't ever want to see it again. This is CBeebies. CBeebies is aimed at kind of zero up to pushing it at six. Um, then we've got CBBC, which stands for Children's BBC, um, which is from where we pick up at six to struggling to 11. We'll get there. Um, and then this last one is, you might not have seen this guy before. This is Nightfall. This is our new standalone game. This is going from eight upwards. It is not CBBC. It's not, it's not CBBS. This is a BBC branded game. It's the first time we've done something like this. Um, it would be great if you guys wanted to go and have a little bit of a play on it. I'm going to give you a little insight here. It's not accessible. <laughs> so if you guys could talk about that, that would be really helpful. Um, so, why include accessibility? Again, a lot of people in this room, you're going to look at me and go preaching to the converted, but I wanted to explain why this is talked about at the BBC. We have an excellent um, accessibility team and department at the BBC, um, and they go around and they make sure we're all doing our jobs. Um, and they very obviously take our... Um, passes office and they turn it around and this is what is written on the back of our pass um it is the whole bbc values um but the bit that i really want to look at is where it says audiences are at the heart of everything we do now that's not some audiences that is not most audiences that is all of the audience in the uk somebody's going to hit me up on this in a second but I believe there is approximately 13.9 million people who have disability that is a lot of people to exclude 13.9 million people if you ever need to explain to your business why you should be including accessibility that's a big number and you should go after it um, another way that accessibility is included at the BBC and why. Um, you were hearing from Sam earlier and you'll be hearing later from people at the BBC about how to, and Ian was talking before about how to create accessibility champions and things like that in your company. I'm an accessibility champion in BBC, so if you want to see what it looks like when we get told what to do and sent off into the jolly world to do our accessibility champion things, this is what it looks like and I'm hoping I'm doing a good job. So, uh, 
the accessibility team came to us and they said, you need to make your games accessible because at the moment they are not. And we went, this is a good point you make. Let's just go and do that. So we identified the need for guidelines. When you start off with a clean slate, it can be a bit daunting. I mean, I work in user experience and... Um, the idea of letting somebody down when your day-to-day -day is trying to empathise with people really doesn't make you feel good. So going into it with a clean slate can feel really overwhelming. And I kind of understand that for anybody who's not looking at accessibility in their company, but we started and it's important to do that. So our first guidelines. They were called the medal standards. This is going back way before I was at the BBC, so please... Um, I'm going to have some patchy knowledge. It might take me a minute. So, the medal standards is very much like the connotations of your normal medals. Bronze, silver and gold. Bronze um, was the UI being accessible. So, for example, I'm going to describe a BBC game to you. We use studios, so we are more like a commissioning board. Um, but the bit that we own internally is the UI because even though we commission our games, we want it to look like they all uh, belong to the BBC and there's a consistent journey, especially for things like settings and menu and pause and um, select screens. So Bronze is making sure that these are accessible using a switch or using two buttons. Uh, the BBC, this is tab and enter and or space. Um, that it's accessible through a screen reader. It's got a minimum hit size, a maximum hit size, and colour contrast regulations. Um, silver, in, these reg uh, in this guideline, you had to make all of the gameplay accessible through two buttons and a screen reader, and everything had to be colour contrast, and everything had to be minimum standards for um, what you'd expect on the web. Uh, that's another point, is that our games are on browsers. So we don't only have to adhere to what is considered standards for games for accessibility, we have to adhere to what is considered to be web standards for accessibility, which can sometimes be a really difficult place to sit in. Um, gold is the whole shebang. Gold is we've gone over and above. Accessibility is the point of this game. Accessibility is why we have made this game. You should not be able to not play this game. It should be physically impossible to not play this game. We started using these. The journey continued. We were up and running. Um, we started looking at accessibility. I think this is always a good thing to to congratulate people when they've started because once you start, you can't stop. Um, some of the problems that we experienced were that agencies really struggled to deliver silver games. Um, another thing I need to point out is that we are not a AAA gaming company. We do not take years to make games. We take months. We have a very quick turnaround when I do user testing, I have one day in which to user test that thing and then tell the studio what we want doing. It's, it's, it's short times. So the agencies really struggled to get everything in because um, when you're on tight timelines like that, everything has to be perfect in communication and sometimes that just doesn't happen. Bronze games didn't include gameplay. As a, a new pair of eyes coming into this um this team 
and seeing that bronze just meant you can use the buttons, but you can't use the thing. I was like, what are we doing? It's like inviting a child to a party and not letting them in. Why would you do that? Why would you make all of it accessible apart from the thing, the playing bit? That's the fun thing. And then most games only managed to achieve bronze. So these were the things that didn't work so well for us. So being part of user experience and being used to agile and reiterating, we decided to give it another shot. So we changed up what we did. Bronze, which you would consider not even the bare minimum for making something accessible, became BBC Gel. Uh, guidelines. BBC Gel is a set of user experience guidelines which is public facing. If you want to see all of the user experience guidelines for the BBC, you go to, uh, just Google BBC Gel, G E L, stands for Global Experience Language. We decided to put the bronze in this, and that is a requirement, it's a minimum expectation. Um, you have to follow Gel at the BBC. Therefore, it didn't even become uh, something that came into our, our sphere in accessibility. You had to do it for everything and everyone. We called them the inclusive design patterns. Next came the pillars. So we worked with um, some external agencies and advocates to pull together an idea of what we should do. Making everything accessible for everybody wasn't working with our games we just weren't able to produce it at a good quality and the BBC quality is something that they really care about um, they decided to break what we were going to make accessible down into four pillars so you have motor vision hearing and cognitive the idea being that each game would be accessible for people who fell under one of these pillars at least these also became public-facing. They are on our jail website under how to design accessible games. It is the driest web page you'll ever go to, um, but it has all of the info. So if you'd like to have a look at what we're using at the moment, please go to there, um, and it will be enlightening but not fun. Generally, the good thing about this was that our games got better. Um, so our minimum expectation was applied as a standard. This is what we were always going to do. The studios were contracted to deliver at least one pillar for all of our games, and they've managed to do that. Usually we excel to two. We included accessibility features, and that became more feasible. So doing things like uh, speeding games up, slowing games down, um, increasing size, um, adding subtitles, so on and so forth, this all became what we could spend our time concentrating on. But there were still some problems. So this is the point at which I came into the team and I became an accessibility champion. I really kind of took hold of this. I decided I wanted to go out and do as much user testing as possible. We live in Manchester, Children's, and we are very close to an excellent charity called Everyone Can, who are based in Sale. They've been really great. It means that every Wednesday, if I want to drop in to basically a bunch of kids who are experts at gaming, who have really diverse and complex needs, I can do it. And I can take all our games at any point of development they're in. So I saw these kids struggling with our games still. And I was like, well, 
we've got these guidelines, we've got these things that we've been told will help us. Why are they still struggling? So, one example is the next step to take it to the streets. This game is great, but it has a horrible soundtrack and it's stuck in my head still. <laughs> this was supposed to hit what we call the vision pillar. The vision pillar uh, for the BBC is being able to play the whole game through with a screen reader. We pick JAWS and VoiceOver. Um, we got a charity to bring some kids in to our offices, um, Henshaws, if anybody knows Henshaws, they're great. Um, and they were playing the game and we set them upon screen readers and everything was not going swimmingly, I'm not going to lie. Um, so I talked to the, um, the charity coordinator and I said, why is this happening? Please tell me why this is happening. And she said, in my experience, children who are blind don't learn to use screen readers until they are in their pre-teens, mid-teens, late-teens, depending on how much support they have. I just want to make clear, this is not me. This is a sweeping statement of somebody else. So I thought... Oh, we're making games for kids who are like eight years old and we're making it on a piece of technology that apparently they don't access till they're a little bit older. I said, why aren't they accessing it at this age? And she said, oh, usually, again, not my statement, they're learning to read and write in Braille and they're using Braille outputs and they're learning things that will help them in the workplace when they're older and learn them, help them to access you know, stories and narrative and things like that. And I said, well, that makes complete sense. Thank you very much. Um, and I looked back at our guidelines and it was all about screen readers. We hadn't done anything for people who have partial sight, who still rely a lot on their sight. We had nothing for children who have not yet learned to use screen readers and it just seemed like a really obvious problem. But because we'd used adult behaviours and stuck it onto our games and we hadn't done any thought process about what accessibility looks like for children, we had this this gap. Anyway, if you do use a screen reader and you would like to try out the next step to take it to the streets, please have a look. It was our first time trying to do this. It has, as soon as, <laughs> as, soon as it went live, uh, one of our internal colleagues who helped me on this uh, sent me a message, went, oh, by the way, well done, it's live. Out of curiosity, do you have any more budget for this? I have some suggestions. <laughs> I went, yeah, I thought you might, Ben. Uh, anyway, the next uh, thing that really grabbed my attention was Operation Ouch Invasion of the Snotchalons. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know, it's a great name, isn't it? Um, this is as close to a first-person shooter game as the BBC is ever going to make. It's um, Operation Ouch is two doctors called um, Dr. Zand and Dr. Chris, if I've got that right. Um, and we've got qu it's quite a big brand of ours. Kids really enjoy learning about the human body and doctors and so on and so forth. Um, it, it's known as being like the icky brand. Like they talk a lot about like snot and gross things and stuff like that. Um, so Invasion of the Snotchalons, um, Dr. Zand or Dr. Chris gets sick and the other one, whichever the other one is, gets shrunk, sent inside them um, and they go around with this kind of snot blaster destroying germs. Um, we decided to make this accessible for people who have um, motor impairments. 
at the BBC, this looks like making the game completely accessible through one or two buttons. The studio decided to pick one button because they thought it worked better with their plan of how to make the game more accessible. The problem with this was that we went to Everyone Can. Uh, there were some children who um, uh, have cerebral palsy uh, who use switches at home. They said, can we play? I said, of course, let's set you up. And the way that this works is that the crosshair for where you would normally be shooting at if you were in an FPS ranges across the landscape and you have to time when you're going to press the button to make the snot gun work. Um, the problem with this is that a lot of children who have cerebral palsy really struggle to do games that have timing in them because obviously they have problems controlling their muscles. So these children really loved the game and really, at first were really excited to think that they could play it and then suddenly realised that they couldn't because they couldn't get close enough to the germs to splat them. The next problem was is that the way that we created challenge in this game was to add a timer um, and obviously if you're having to wait for your crosshair to range across the screen for ages to finally get to that last little germ who's in the corner, you're not going to be able to do it with a timed um, set. So we had to remove it. Um, and the suggestion we made to uh, add a different challenge came too late. So there was no challenge in this game for children who've got motor impairments and it just became a no-fail game which they found really boring. So after about two minutes, they turned it off and went, I don't want to play this anymore. That was a massive eye-opener for me. It was like, we've not got enough features. This isn't working. The last one was that the pillars were imbalanced. Just due to the way that we developed the games, it was easy, oh, I'm going to say easier, but that's a subjective word. Um, it doesn't take as much time or and effort to produce some features as it does others and the features that we had put down for the hearing pillar were some of them one impossible for us we said that the game must include haptics when you are making a game within an iframe on a browser haptics are not possible therefore studios went we'll do the hearing pillar because there's nothing you can do to tell us we have to do that because it is impossible when oh great we didn't think about that um so we found that we were having to push back a lot on studios and say we want more. So where are we now? I'm reviewing the whole thing. I've decided that it's not acceptable. And me and my team, um, in the games team, we've gone, we don't really want this anymore. We think it, we can do better. So we're doing a big research piece. Um, it's a three-tier research piece. Um, one tier is user research, one tier is business needs, and one tier is industry specialists. Um, the part that I'm doing is uh, the user research and the business needs. So we're going around the UK. We've got about 20 families who've got children with complex and varied needs who are all under the age of 10, and they love games. Um, it's been so eye-opening. Uh, and it's been so inspiring to watch the children play their games and say what they struggle with and what they want. And being able to listen to them say, you know, I love this game, but 
I just can't do this, I can't do that. And some of the workarounds. The other day I watched a little boy who's blind who uses a screen reader to play games get to a point where a notification wouldn't read out on his screen reader. He took a picture of it, put it into, I think it's like seeing eye or something like that, and it read it out to him and then he went back to the game. And I was like, mind blown. You shouldn't have to do that, but just the creativity that they've had to develop to be able to use the things that we take for granted is unbelievable. Um, the videos of and the recordings that we're taking of kids doing that is going down really well internally. It's something I would say to people who are doing accessibility research is that if you want to grab the attention of your business, go take your product that doesn't work to a child who really wants to use it and take a video of them failing to use it and getting upset about it because it opens doors like you have no idea. <laughs> so I think the point I want to make is that the journey doesn't stop. I really hope that this time next year I can come back to you and say this is what we're doing now. And we still think we can improve this because technology is always changing and kids are always getting smarter and better than us at tech things. But it doesn't stop. Um, and you need to keep on looking at what you're doing. You need to keep on looking at your users because they're changing as well as you. So thank you very much. Again, I think we've decided that if we do have time for questions, we're going to do it at the end. So I'll hand over straight to Mark. So I've got two things to hold, and I don't know what goes in what hand. Um, hello. Um, so I'm Mark. Uh, I'm a principal user researcher at Sony PlayStation, um, or Worldwide Studios Europe, but no one really knows what that is, so I say PlayStation, because people do. Uh, and I'm also an accessibility specialist. Uh, I've been working in UX and accessibility for nearly 10 years, which is a scary thought when I counted it up. Um, here's a lovely selection of some games that I've worked on. Uh, a majority of these, I think, have also I've done a lot of accessibility work with as well. Um, so it's stuff from uh, quite recently with Dreams, uh, Blood and Truth, and Erica, to some games from a bit further back like Until Dawn and uh, Tearaway. Uh, I also think I was it, about 25 to 30 games I've worked on since I've joined PlayStation as well. So I'm quite quite a back catalogue now, which is quite cool. Um, so there, that was a selection of some of the games I'd worked on. Uh, what is it I do for my job? Um, so it's kind of four main pillars that I, I kind of work with. The first one being uh, usability testing or U, uh, UX uh, with the lovely PlayStation controller icon there. Um, so that's pretty much working out what uh, players are struggling with in games, if they don't know where to go or what to do, what's confusing, what's difficult. Really kind of removing, um, to borrow a, a phrase from Sam this morning, uh, the friction is what we're looking at there. Trying to remove any of that to make sure the experience is as smooth as possible. Uh, next, we have appeal testing. So this is where we get players in to uh, find out what it is they like and what they don't like about the games that we're making, uh, and also the extent to which they like and don't like things, uh, and also confirming if um, characters are particularly interesting, because sometimes you're not meant to like characters, and uh, if, if we just reported and said, yeah, no one likes this character, take them out, that's actually a bad thing, because they're meant to be a villain or something. Um, I'll skip accessibility for a second. And narrative is the one on the end, uh, which is essentially the usability of the story. So anything that's kind of plot holes, uh, character motivations, even just understanding the characters, knowing who they are, what, how they're connected to each other, anything like that. It's, it's kind of making sure that players understand what, uh, what the story of the game is. <clears throat> and then lastly, and quite obviously as to why I'm here today, accessibility. Um, it's been a big part of my role. I've really helped to push it within the company. Uh, when I started, there wasn't much chatter. I was 
kind of in my own bubble for a while, so I didn't really know what else was kind of going on in the company. But certainly, uh, it's progressed, as Ian was saying, and uh, as you can see, just from the last year. But even across the six years I've been at PlayStation, it's come an incredibly long way, and I'm very happy to be a part of the accessibility community at PlayStation. Uh, when it comes to accessibility, again, four is going to come up quite a lot today for some reason, but there are four kind of pillars to the accessibility part. Uh, firstly, we have our own internal guidelines, which I put together uh, over a number of years uh, and a number of revisions. I think before the first version launched, there were 41 drafts, to give you some idea about how long it took to put that together. Um, we also do accessibility reviews, which is what I'm going to be talking about in more detail today. Uh, accessibility testing, so that's bringing in users with uh, specific requirements uh, to make sure that our products are actually working for them. Because uh, as best as we can do with reviewing, it's no, um, no contest. You have to get people in to, to take a look and play the games themselves. Uh, and then we also do accessibility workshops and uh, inclusive design sprints with our team. So that's kind of going to the studios, presenting, telling them why accessibility is important if they've not had that step yet. Uh, and then doing um, workshops with them so they can um, ideate and think about all the different ways they can make their game accessible. Because as much as I you see the majority of what um, Europe is putting out, and to some extent the US and Japan, I'll never know a game as well as the development team do. So it's always better to get them to start thinking about how they can make their game more accessible. <laughs> Uh, and then in terms of when considering accessibility, <clears throat> so usability and, and kind of user research normally happens around kind of two years before the game goes live. Uh, not always, but as a rough estimate. Uh, accessibility needs to be thought about from the beginning of development. And as Ian said, we, we were in a position where a lot of studios were kind of shipping games, adding in features fairly late, uh, and doing some accessibility. And while it was great, it was not nearly enough you know, at least in my opinion anyway, uh, and I guess the opinion of most gamers who talk about it on Twitter and Reddit. Um, and we get to a point now where games that shipped in the last year or two, they're starting up their production and pre-prod, and they're starting to think about all the accessibility they can put in with their new games, which is great. Um, and when we're thinking about, when I'm talking to teams, it's always about identifying the core pillars. Uh, again, just by, because I wanted to use the Sony buttons, it's four, but this, this one's an accident, it's not like the other fours. Um, uh, so with the core pillars, it's thinking about what does a game, what is a game trying to do? What are the main mechanics of the game? What do we need to really think about? What can't we sacrifice when we're trying to make the game more accessible? Um, so if it's a game which is a narrative game, uh, narrative games, obviously, a big part of that is they're a very cinematic experience. So making sure things like subtitling is pretty important there. Uh, a lot of narrative games as well, they rely a lot on timed button input. So again, thinking about the um, timing and accuracy of button presses is also a big part of that. So it's, it's things like that which we really have to consider when it comes to what is the most important thing for that game. And this will obviously change from genre to genre and game to game. Um, sorry, it's a very similar slide to what you guys were just showing, <laughs> um, purely by happenstance. But uh, what I tend to show to a lot of teams is this um, flow, which helps to kind of put accessibility into a bit more context. So with accessibility, there's, and this is to borrow from Ian's previous talks uh, from uh, previous conferences, but there are the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different medical conditions, and trying to design for all of them is nightmarish and impossible. But when you boil it down to essentially these five areas, then it's a lot more manageable because there's a lot of overlap. Um, and the way it's presented, especially in terms of games, is thinking about 
the flow and the interaction or the interaction loop, I guess. So you have uh, receiving the stimulus. So this kind of covers the audiovisual side of things. Um, you could also include uh, touch and haptic on that side, but then my flow would be imbalanced and my OCD would never let me forgive that. Um, in the middle, you've got processing and determining a response. So this is cognitive, neurodiversity, uh, anything like that. So at this point, the player, you know, the game has sent the message to the player. The player is now comprehending that and working out what they want to send back to the game. And then lastly, providing an input back. So this is predominantly going to be uh, motor side of impairments uh, using hands or if it's a uh, kind of uh, like a, a dancing game, your feet. Um, speech is also on there. It happens much, uh, it's a much rarer one. Uh, obviously a big one for, uh, for Sony would be SingStar. Um, obviously with that, it's more about pitch than actually uh, word recognition, which is actually quite good. Uh, and if you remember back on the Xbox 360, Tom Clancy's End War, which is a very old example I keep trotting out because that was the last one to really use kind of speech recognition, at least on a console. But I mean, you could even have things like the voice commands at a console level where you say like, PlayStation, uh, go to trophies or something like that. Um, and if you take one thing away, this is a really good slide as well. Um, so it's a lot of information in a very short amount of time that I tend to give to, to development teams. And so I kind of found that the, the two main points that across the board are applicable for game design is uh, well, for accessibility in game design is communicating information in multiple ways so a good example is with color so if you're using um, again from the talk this morning you've got red and green as good and bad putting a plus and a minus there it helps to denote that red is bad and green is good uh, and then offering flexibility so this is providing multiple options that players can turn on uh, even better than binary binary ones are sliders sliders are fantastic for game accessibility because that means that players can set exactly the size that they need rather than it just being an on-off because like most things in life, there's no one-size-fits-all solution. So having multiple sizes or multiple solutions is even better. Uh, and then to break down the communicating information in multiple ways, it kind of comes to this kind of holy trinity. Um, so you have visual, audio, and haptic. So if, for example, uh, you are a sightless or low-vision gamer, then any information that's conveyed purely by uh, visual cues is going to be missed or hard to interpret. So that then the game needs to provide audio and hopefully and haptic feedback as well, although sometimes it could be quite a lot of information to give at once with multiple channels. Um, similar for audio, if you're deaf or hard of hearing, then you're going to rely on visuals and haptics. And the same for if you have to turn the haptics off due to any motor impairments, uh, then you need the visual and audio cues. So an example might be if you're getting shot off screen in a first-person shooter game. A lot of first-person shooter games, they have a nice red ring that shows you the direction you're being shot at. You have the audio cue from the, uh, the gunfire, and then you have the controller vibrating to let you know that you've been shot as well. So that's an example of like, the multi-channel communication. Right, so with that out of the way, uh, I'm going to talk a bit more specifically about our reviews uh, and how we go about doing them. So these are the eight, nine, if you kind of separate text and UI out, um, into two separate ones, areas that we really consider when it comes to doing an accessibility review. Uh, it's similar to thinking about every kind of medical condition. It's a lot to think about every single kind of guideline that developers have to hit. So making it as simple as possible and as all-encompassing as possible is also a very good strategy. So thinking about things like color, contrast, audio, text and UI, subtitles, controls, difficulty, and assists. Difficulty and assists often kind of go a bit hand-in-hand hand as well, which is quite useful. 
Uh, there's also kind of four bonus groups. Uh, the first three tutorials, menus, and safe systems tend to fall a bit more into the usability side of things. There's actually quite a lot of crossover between usability and accessibility. Um, they're both about the user, so it makes sense. Um, and then online communication, which is a bit more kind of on the legal requirements side with like the CVAA and there's also a European Disabilities Act, um, I think 2023 that's coming into. I'm sure Ian can correct me if that's wrong. It's about then. Ish, ish. <laughs> um, so this is uh, an example of what my checklist uh, looked like. And I think this is the most up-to-date version I have. Um, and it's going through um, using um, kind of a basis from the guidelines that are already existing, such as Ian's Game Accessibility Guidelines.com, uh, AbleGamersIncludification.com, uh, and the IDGA Game Accessibility Special Interest Groups Top 10. Um, glad I got all those letters in the right order. Um, and it's a big list of everything that developers should be doing. Uh, we originally had it broken up into three groups, taking the web accessibility guidelines as a queue of compliance of AAA, AAA, but we found that since we were telling developers just hit the AA, it made more sense just to say just hit the basic group and the advanced group is if you want to kind of go a bit further rather than giving them three groups and saying do two of them. It sounded a bit weird. Um, and then it's kind of broken up uh, on the left in terms of those groups that I've already showed you. So like visuals, audio, text, subtitles, uh, they were the kind of key areas. But using this and putting it into practice was actually incredibly difficult. Games do not appear in this order or issues in games do not appear in this order. So trying to track them was incredibly difficult. There's a lot of scrolling up and down and trying to make sure uh, things were going in the right column and it got a bit messy. And also there were games that I reviewed where Within the first 20 minutes, I had five things that didn't fit technically within any of the uh, checklist guidelines that I had. So it led me to question, uh, this is a good resource, but I don't think it's the best resource to use for a review. So some software that we use for our usability, uh, both reviews and testing, is mind mapping software. So this is really useful stuff. You create kind of branches and children to those branches and you can easily drag and drop and move things around. It's really, really great stuff. I definitely recommend using it if you're not familiar with it. It's uh, the one we use, I think it's uh, Mind Manager or Mind Jet. I forget which one the company is, but it's very, very good stuff. Um, and this works really well for when we're doing our usability research because, again, like I say, not everything comes in the uh, nice order that you might want it to. So when you can drag and drop stuff, create new groups, create thematic groups, merge everything together. It works incredibly well. And you know the kind of brainwave idea that this might actually be useful for our other type of research, it worked. And we ended up doing much more, well, it's, at least in my feeling, much more thorough research and much easier to capture the information from subsequent accessibility reviews using the software. So with this, you could either kind of go by those visual, audio, text, subtitle groups, or you could do thematic groups, such as the tutorial or, or the story mode. Again, it's all kind of really open to however you might want to, uh, to do that. Uh, and then when we do our accessibility reviews, there's, well, there's actually five. I'll tell you about the fifth in a second. But the, um, we kind of um, give each one a rating. So uh, we rate uh, with, uh, thankfully, they're all hopefully very accessible using color and symbols. Um, but we have a tick to say that we believe this feature is accessible uh, and there shouldn't be any barriers uh, and or it's following best practice guidelines. Uh, we have the bar or the stop sign as a way of saying we believe this is partially accessible. So there's something about it that is, it's like you're almost there. It's like you might have subtitles, but they're not the best format of subtitles. It's, it's kind of like the 
you're on the right track kind of one. Uh, we have the cross, which is, we believe this to be inaccessible, and this is going to create a barrier for users. Um, and then we also have the plus, which is an opportunity. So we don't like to give recommendations because we're not game developers ourselves uh, in the user research team. But we can at least kind of, with our knowledge of best practice and heuristics and guidelines, we can at least say, well, actually, you've done this. If you want to take it to that next step and make it even better, this is what we would kind of suggest. But within, like, not as a mandatory, you must do this kind of thing. Uh, within the last year or so, we also added in critical because there were some inaccessible ones that were so inaccessible when we did the review that inaccessible itself didn't quite do it justice and we felt it would get lost within the rest of the inaccessible um, issues. So we added in a critical one as well just to really make those stand out of like, if you're going to tackle anything, this is where you need to focus it first. Oh, critical is a triangle with an exclamation mark in it. Um, it's also yellow, so it wouldn't have shown up very well on the slide. <laughs> okay, so with that out of the way, I'm going to do, and I'm going to say it's the world's first ever live accessibility review, um, maybe. Um, so firstly, um, just out of interest, has anyone done usability or accessibility reviews before in this room? Okay, cool. Good show of hands. Um, so uh, out of those people, uh, do you mostly, or hands up again, if you mostly use like heuristics or guidelines to compose those reviews? Is that roughly the same number? Okay, cool. Um, I'm not saying throw all that out the window, but I'm going to show you how uh, is a good way to approach this without having to be so stringent and stick to those guidelines. Uh, also, if anyone works at Rebellion in this room, I'm sorry, I'm going to go through your game <laughs> and uh, show a lot of inaccessible things about it. Um, cool, so this is a game called Strange Brigade. It came out, I think, about two years ago, a year ago. Um, it's a cooperative four-player kind of wave-based third-person shooter. So it's basically you and three friends shooting lots of mummies in Egypt is kind of the, 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 the elevator pitch for the game. Um, you can still play it single-player, however, uh, and I'm going to go through and show you how I would approach this doing, a, uh, doing an accessibility review. Um, so first, uh, I am a settings menu nerd. I always have been, and I don't know where I got it from. Uh, even when I was a kid, the first thing I would do when I got a new game is I'd open up settings and I'd have a look at them and I'd see what I could turn on and off. It's weird, I don't know, but it's very useful here. So I would always start with a settings menu. I've done accessibility reviews in the past. I've spent almost an hour just on issues from the settings menu alone. So fantastic place to start. You can do so much before you even ever start playing the game. Cool. So I'm going to go through a few of the uh, options in here uh, with my accessible colored ticks as well. I've used blue and orange. It's good. Um, so first option we've got here is uh, settings for subtitles. So you can turn them on and off, um, which is good. Uh, you have a slider for subtitle size. By default, it's set to maximum, which is also very good. Um, you'll see subtitles a bit more later on. Uh, I don't, unfortunately, have a, si a, a slide with the smallest version on, but they are very small when they're small. Um, you can also change the letterbox opacity as well, which is the, the um, solid background color behind the subtitle. So again, it's good. As I mentioned before, sliders, fantastic for games. Just having on-offs, never usually the best idea, but it's a good starting point. Uh, next, you've got a bunch of assists here. So you've got uh, auto-reload, which is nice. It takes the pressure off a player, so they don't have to always press, in this case, square to hit reload. One of the characters has a single-shot weapon that you can start the game with. Having to press square after every single bullet 
is a pain for a lot of players, I imagine, whether or not they have a disability, so that's nice. Uh, you have aim assist, so it will snap onto the nearest enemy uh, or the nearest trap. Um, weirdly, it doesn't snap onto the nearest explosive barrel. Maybe a slight oversight there. Uh, and you also have the option to turn on hold to aim, so you could have tap L2 and you're in aim mode, tap it again, you're out of aim mode, or hold L2 and then you continue to aim. Um, I will jump ahead to the game slightly here because they do actually cancel each other out. If you have uh, hold to aim turned off, you lose the aim assist. It'll, it'll lock onto the nearest enemy, but then you're on your own and you have to then come out of hold to out of aim and go back into it to aim assist again, which is basically the same as just using hold to aim. Anyway. Uh, and I'll just point that out there. Uh, we also have our first red flag. That is some text size in the game. It's very small. It's using a very stylized font. Uh, already, before we get into the game, we can see this is probably going to be an issue that's going to continue. Uh, next in the audio, we've got separate sliders for music, effects, dialogue, also a master volume. Definitely one not to forget to have a master volume slider in. Um, a lot of games often set their volume levels all at 100 to start the game with. This may not always be the best audio mix. Uh, even at 100, sometimes the background music or sound effects can be quite uh, overwhelming and be even louder than the dialogue, which is also set at 100%. So um, while they have the sliders, maybe not the best. They're all at 100% to start with. But still, we can control those individually, which is great. Uh, now to the controls. Uh, we have separate sensitivity and inversions for both the X and Y axes, which is your up, down, and left and right. Quite often these are put together in a single um, setting, so it's great to see they're broken out separately here because for some people um, you might be inverted one way but not inverted the other way. So having to put up with controls that are you're battling against the entire time is an issue uh, for any gamer really, not even gamers who have uh, motor needs. Uh, and then we've got here uh, an ability to configure the key bindings, which you think, great, okay. Um, uh, actually, for some reason on PS4, it's the computer keyboard bindings. Uh, um, and you can't change them to PS4. It's weird. I don't know why. It's so confusing. Uh, so let's move on from that. Uh, next, uh, in the interface, you can turn on and off uh, and even sets to uh, them to show when they're relevant as opposed to just being binary on or off. Lots of different HUD elements like your health, enemy health, when you collect gold, um, a bunch of other things. Uh, this can be really good because a lot of times it can be quite overwhelming if you've got a lot of information on the HUD. Um, so this way it's nice to be able to configure what you want on and only show it if it's relevant as well, which is pretty good. Okay, so character setup next. I think I've got a video next. Hopefully it's going to play. It did when I did the rehearsal thing. Okay, this is not a trick question. Would anyone like to posit what they think is the issue with what I just showed you on that video? Not the transition, no, uh, although that could be an issue. It did seem relatively smooth, but camera shakes and transitions can be an issue. Uh, not in this case, but again, uh, lots of stuff, animations in the background can be an issue. Uh, what was wrong there is that they had the narrator telling you the character's name and giving them a bit of information, but there weren't any subtitles for it. So that's uh, something to look at as well. Subtitles are not just for cutscenes and for gameplay. It can also happen in menus as well. So it's a good thing to be on the lookout for, for any little things like that too. Um, 
Next, so this is our weapon loadout. So we've got our, uh, our big gun here that we can choose from. Uh, let's have a take a look at a few things that might be issues on this slide. Uh, again, we've got our small text, incredibly small text. Uh, it's uh, this, if I do one thing in my life, it's going to be make text bigger in games. Uh, also, in the top corner, you also have uh, kind of a white creamy text on a very light red background. So contrast there is going to be an issue too. Uh, but on the right-hand side here, you've got uh, red and green being used, but also uh, kind of an up triangle and a down triangle being used to show the, the extra meaning. So this is good. It's communicating information in multiple ways. However, there might be an issue with the color of the main bar, which is kind of this brownie ready color. So if we put a colorblind filter onto this slide, you'll see that the, uh, the top bar, which was green, basically disappears against the, um, the ready brownie bar to show what the base was and what the increase was. So actually, with colorblindness, it's hard to differentiate the two, because a lot of issues with colorblindness tend to be about color contrast as well. Um, you can see the red still kind of showing a bit kind of yellowy, orangey there. So you do have some contrast, but the green is getting lost. Um, and pro tip, if you want to check contrast, uh, black and white is a really good or check for colorblindness, I should say. Doing things in grayscale, black and white, is a very good way. This gives you a very good idea about how it's going to look, uh, regardless of color. And in fact, uh, news came out recently about a game called The Outer Worlds, which the, um, I'm going to get this wrong, uh, creative director or studio head is uh, red-green colorblind. Uh, and so he instructed the UI designers to design the UI in black and white to start with to make sure it would be colorblind friendly and they wouldn't have to use lots of additional iconography and stuff to show the color meaning. Uh, next, cinematics. So finally getting into some gameplay. Well, kind of. Egypt, land of ancient secrets and mummified mysteries. Veronica Brownridge, some of you probably owe your lives to the valuable undercover work she does for the department. Veronica, an invaluable contributor to the brigade's efforts. Her last assignment was to join the dig expedition of Sir Edgar Harvin, a wealthy amateur Egyptologist, searching for the legendary tomb. Of Sateki. Sateki? A black hearted fiend. Yes. The infamous witch queen of ancient Egypt. Her final resting place has been lost for millennia. Miss Brownridge's task was to ensure it remained so, but her last communication indicated that Harbin had found the tomb and was about to open it. We haven't heard from her since. And but now fear the worst. Oh dear, oh dear. Um, I quite enjoyed that it ends on oh dear, oh dear, because I've got a lot of things to say about that. Uh, <laughs> um, so firstly, uh, you had three different characters speaking in that cutscene uh, and two subtitle colors. So you have a yellowy color for the kind of charmingly Britishy narrator person. Uh, and then the voiceover that was coming from the woman on the radio was white, and the dialogue for the male character who was in the blimp with the other characters was also white. They don't have speaker identification, which would have been putting their name and a colon uh, to help show them, and they don't even use a different color for uh, anyone. So everyone who isn't the kind of witty narrator person is all white. Everyone, the, the narrator guy is yellow, so they do differentiate between those two, but any other character beside the narrator doesn't get differentiated, which is a bit of a problem. Um, and as you can see, the subtitle size isn't great. This is the subtitles at their largest size as well. Um, I would guess that they're maybe not as much, uh, not as big as they could be because of this issue here. Ah! So what you have here is 
some really badly formatted subtitles. So, like I mentioned before, you don't have speaker identification, so you don't know when people are changing talking. Um, and here you have four lines of text on screen at once. Um, for the most part, it seems that they break it up based on when a different character starts talking, so you end up with these very long blocks of text. Um, these are really bad to read. Uh, a lot of guidelines will talk around like 42 characters per line, no more than two lines of text or subtitles on screen at the same time. Um, that's really not so great. Uh, ways that you can do it uh, is you can break it up like this. So you can have, again, as I say, with a speaker identification, director. Yes, the infamous witch queen of ancient Egypt, her final resting place has been lost for a millennia. So you have two sentences there. Well, three technically if you count the yes. Um, broken up per sentence. So it's always good to try and start a sentence on a new line. Next. Miss Brownridge's task was ensure it remains so, dot, dot, dot. We put the ellipsis there to tell people the subtitles are going to continue. That's not the end of a sentence. Because this sentence is too long to have on two lines of text. Dot, dot, dot. But her last communication uh, indicated that Harbin had found the tomb and was about to open it. Full stop. Again, two lines of text. Another full stop. And finally, we haven't heard from her since and we expect the worst full stop. So it could easily do the same thing, four lines of text. It's all about having these intelligent subtitle breaks. Um, and that's an example of how you can do it better. Uh, next, these are little inst interstitials that show whenever you get a new enemy appearing um, for the first time. In this case, it's the sinister stinger, the scorpion, uh, whose tail glows green, but is not a weak spot for some reason. Um, so if you know anything about games, that's weird. Um, what they've done is they've put a drop shadow on the text. Uh, also, it's in all caps, which isn't the best to read. Um, uh, sentence case with capital letters and lower cases much easier, um, especially for uh, people with uh, low reading ages and dyslexia. Um, but as you can see here, because it's black and white and white text, you end up with a text getting lost against very light white backgrounds. Uh, right, we're finally going to get to the gameplay. Um, so this is a shot from the game, and I'll just go through some of the things you can see on this uh, image. Uh, so firstly, there are some positives. They are using uh, letterboxing or a, a in this case, it's a translucent black background for the text. So it does make it slightly easier to read. Um, it doesn't get as lost against the background. Uh, so that's nice. Uh, however, uh, in the top left-hand corner where you have your objectives, it's written in all caps and they use uh, kind of a light whitey yellow text and a light whitey orangey drop shadow, which actually makes the text a little bit blurry to read. Um, and as I said, it's all in all caps. Uh, for the uh, tutorials, uh, again, very small text using a very uh, cursive font, which is not especially easy to read. Um, you probably can't see that one. That's the distance to your objective. It is the smallest text in the game. It's so tiny. <laughs> it's, it's so bad. Uh, also, you have these uh, small icons here. So this is showing you've got a pistol as your secondary weapon. Uh, you're quite right to squint. Um, again, uh, as mentioned previously, even just standing 10 feet away from a TV and getting a good idea for the icon size is very, very useful and would probably stop people making such small icons. Uh, you also have here um, uh, text that doesn't have that uh, background, as mentioned previously. Uh, the game is set in Egypt. It's very yellow, so choosing that color and that drop shadow for the font is not a good idea. I'm just going to say. Uh, next, we've got another shot from the game. Um, there are some enemies. Uh, again, enemies are quite dark. There's a lot of shadow. It's very hard to spot them, so potentially having some more high contrast options for the enemies to help them stand out against the game would be a nice idea. Uh, here, again, we've got uh, kind of cursive text, uh, no background to it. Again, can easily get lost against the environment. This is an instruction to say, shoot that thing in the middle. Um, you also have a crosshair, which, again, light color, light background. It's going to get lost in the gameplay, so that's another thing to look out for. 
Um, I've got these arrows in the wrong order, but this would have been a great transition. So the thing the shoot me is pointing to, um, that actually shows its state. It's either ready to use or recharging. That is shown by color alone uh, and can easily be misinterpreted. Both very kind of light, bright, white colors. Uh, and then we've got barrels, uh, red barrels. They mean shoot me in like every video game ever. Um, unless you're colorblind, and then it becomes a lot harder because there's a barrel on the other side of the screen with no shoot overlay on it. As you can see here, actually, there is kind of an effect to it, which does help, but even with uh, the color filter put over it, you can see they're less distinguishable than when um, you don't have them uh, set that way. Uh, and then lastly here, we've got um, some very small UI enemy health bars, which are very, very small and thin and hard to read, which is very difficult. Uh, and then one of the worst defenders in the game are what I like to call the spooky hands. So the spooky hands show up when an enemy is off screen and about or in range of attacking you. Um, the spooky hand will kind of come at the bottom of the screen from the side or from behind you or from the middle part of the screen to indicate there is an enemy there ready to attack you. Except it's almost always in shadow, and it's a shadowy hand, so you never see it. Um, it wasn't hard getting uh, uh, damaged when I was getting the, the screen capture for this, because I never saw that. <laughs> it's so bad. Uh, so again, low contrast UI elements, which are pretty bad. They have a white outline to the hand, but it still doesn't stop you getting lost in the shadow. Uh, this is the weapon upgrade screen. Again, we've got some low contrast here. White, light color on light color is never a good idea. Uh, even with their drop shadow, it doesn't really help it stand out as much as it probably could. Uh, small text again, in all caps. Again, doesn't make it the easiest to read. When you're in all caps, you lose ascenders and descenders, uh, which are like your tips of the H's and your bottoms of your Y's. Uh, they help letters become more readable uh, when it's in all caps. It loses all that and is not quite as readable. Uh, also, the contrast doesn't look particularly great on that text. I checked it. It's actually all right, but the small text actually means that contrast seems to make it actually worse uh, or appear worse. Uh, we have another example of color usage. So you have a yellow arc when you're throwing uh, like the dynamite in this example. Uh, and that means it's not actually going to be in range of an enemy or hit an enemy. Uh, it turns red when there is an enemy in range to give you an idea about when is a good time to throw that dynamite. Um, if you're colorblind, they look almost identical uh, and makes it very hard to distinguish whether or not you should throw that dynamite. Uh, you do get a reticle over the enemy if it will actually hit them, but you're not always going to be super accurate. And even uh, accuracy within games is another thing to look out for in terms of inaccessibility. Uh, next, another common trope for video games is buttons that you have to hold. So in this case, every time you need to interact with a treasure or a key item or a door to unlock, you have to hold square, which is rubbish, really, because the only other thing that's on square is reload. And if you don't have your gun out, why would you be reloading? So why not just make it square? It's kind of uh, it feels a bit obvious to me. Um, and then also, also the icon file is pretty small too. Uh, oh, and I should mention, it's not just square. To collect the souls of the dead enemies to use your power-up, you have to hold R2. Um, but weirdly enough, if you're in range of the souls, they'll just come to you anyway. So if they're a little bit further away, you have to hold R2, or you could just move closer. Uh, and then lastly, you have uh, some puzzles that require a lot of precision in terms of aiming at the correct parts. So here it's basically a pipe mania style puzzle where you have to shoot the parts of the snake to get it to line up and create a, um, a continuous uh, body for it. Um, if you miss the shot, you're going to ruin the puzzle because you'll shoot something you didn't mean to. Um, and then you'll have to start or have to redo parts of the puzzle, which are not particularly great. Um, one thing I forgot to mention is actually the game does have auto run, so you don't actually have to click L3 or press a button or press and hold a button to make your character run, which is actually a really nice feature. Um, however, the speed at which it 
um, is enabled within the game actually is fairly slow. So getting away from enemies is actually kind of tricky. So having the option to set how soon you go into auto run could be another option that they look at. Um, cool. So that is a whirlwind tour of just a small fraction of the game. Uh, again, looking at mostly color, contrast, audio, text and UI, subtitles, controls, difficulty and assists. I think I covered pretty much all of those. Um, so summary. In my experience, not everything fits neatly into a checklist when you're doing a review. What I find is more effective is to understand the source material and be able to apply that to the game, just to know these things that are going to crop up. Obviously, using tools such as contrast checkers, colorblind filters, all manner of other things that you can mostly get for free online um, is also a good way to help try to validate some of that information as well. Uh, also being able to group things into broader themes and categories and not just point out a big list of uh, issues that a game might have, but to say, hey, here, we think the, the biggest area for you is actually color, and here are all the issues to do with color. Um, my favorite, the settings menu is always a great place to start. If you're doing this for games, always look there first. You can probably find out a lot of information you need before you even start playing the game. Uh, consider the game's core pillars and what would be an intentional barrier. A lot of the time with intentional barriers, though, um, that would be something like in a shooting game, obviously you need to have like precision and accuracy to shoot something. There's often ways you can offer flexibility by changing things of like um, snap aiming like this game does have and offering ways to still allow players to play the game and get around the barriers to an extent. Um, think about communication of information and flexibility of options. A lot of the information that we've just gone through, a lot of that could be circumvented by just having um, the designers think about one or both of those for nearly every one of those issues. Uh, and then lastly, uh, I couldn't finish but say this, but reviews are very, very useful for identifying barriers. This is always the first step when we do um, uh, reviews. Is this, We look at this first, we try to pick out what are going to be the biggest issues for the game teams so they can try to get rid of what are going to be the biggest blockers and then they can ideally resolve them and then we can get people in to user test it because you shouldn't just do a review alone. Nothing is better than actually having users in and crying when they can't use the thing that they're meant to be able to use. Um, oh, I had a thank you slide but apparently live streaming will return at 12.45pm. <laughs>